And I thought something, I suppose, never hit me the way it hit me just the other day. The Apostle Paul makes a statement that is quite remarkable, down in verse 13. In the middle of the verse, he says, But one thing I do. Now, I'd read that thousands of times, but it never hit me like it hit me the other day. One thing I do. Now, that's got to be the irreducible minimum. You mean to tell me with all of the complexity of divine revelation, with all of the input that the Apostle Paul had had from the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write at least 13 epistles, with all of the nuances of theology, with all of the immensity, all of the vastness, all of the unsearchable riches and treasures of of divine truth for which he prayed that he might have enlightenment and understanding, he could take the whole thing and reduce it to one thing? That he could say, one thing I do? I remember when I used to teach here many years ago, I taught several courses here when this was still Los Angeles Baptist College, and one of the courses I taught was a course on evangelism, and I found a textbook And the title of it was something like 57 Ways to Know God. And it just had a whole list of these things. 57 Ways to Know God. I'll never forget that book. And I I went through that whole book. And by the time I got done with it, I decided I can't use this. It's too confusing. I saw a tract a few years ago that said five things everybody needs to know. And it took you through the gospel. And then, of course, there's a familiar one known as the four spiritual laws. But Paul had reduced this whole deal to one thing. One irreducible thing. In my life, there's just one thing. He says, I forget what's behind me. And I reach forward for that one thing. Now, I'm telling you, this this could be the greatest discovery of your Christian experience. If you want to get your arms around all the complexity of spiritual life, if you want to reduce all of the myriad of formulas regarding justification and sanctification and glorification, if you want to take all of theology and uh, freeze-dry it down to what is the very condensed essence of it, here it is, one thing I do. In fact, to give you a little more insight into it, go back one verse to verse 12. He says in the middle of the verse, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, this is another insight into the one thing. He says, there's one thing I do. I press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, God had one thing in mind. When he, when he saved me, there was one goal in mind when He redeemed me, and that goal has become the pursuit of my entire life. What is that goal? Go back to Romans chapter 8. And I believe it is clearly indicated to us here why we were saved, why God in the beginning laid hold of us, in the 8th chapter of Romans, I want you to notice there are many very profound things toward the end of the chapter. 
But I want you to notice verse 29, Romans 8, 29. It says, Whom He predestined, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Now, stop there for a moment. Whoever God foreknew, He predestined. Whoever He predestined, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, you were saved by God's eternal predestining plan to be made like whom? Christ. That, in fact, is the irreducible minimum of redemption. You were chosen by the foreknowledge and predestination of God to be redeemed in order that you might be conformed to the image of His Son, to be made like Christ. Put it in the language of 1 John 3, 2, that's going to come to pass in the future when you see Him, for when He shall appear, we shall be what? Like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now, this is a profound and far-reaching reality. God, in eternity past, predestined a certain group of people. They're called in the Bible the elect. He predetermined that those people would become like Jesus Christ. Why? Back here to Romans 8, verse 29. In order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. The word firstborn doesn't necessarily mean first in chronology. The word means the preeminent one. You remember in the Old Testament, the firstborn son was the one who had the inheritance. He was the one with all the privileges and all the rights. Prototokos means the privileged one, the supreme one, the premier one. And what he is saying here is that he wanted Christ to be the supreme one among many brethren who would be like him. Now, why? Why did God want to give to Christ a redeemed humanity who would be made like Him to be His brothers? The answer is very simple. The Father wanted to give them to the Son as an expression of His love. God loved the Son so much that He wanted to express His love to the Son by giving Him a redeemed humanity who would do nothing forever and ever and ever and ever but praise Him and honor Him and glorify Him and extol His glory. And that's why we were saved. God, in eternity past, before time began, Titus chapter 1 says, in ages long ago, which is really a way to express eternity, God made a covenant with Christ. That covenant, according to Hebrews 13.20, is called the eternal covenant. It was made when there weren't any people around. There may not even have been angels. We don't know. But God, the first member of the Trinity, went to God, the second member of the Trinity, and said, I love you so much that I want to give to you a redeemed humanity who will be made ultimately like you, and they will surround you forever and ever and ever with praise and glory. This is the way of my expression of love. You love somebody, you write them a card. Maybe you write your own words, maybe you use some printed words, and uh, you express your love by praising them and extolling them and honoring them. 
Maybe you write a long letter and you recite their virtues and your gratitude for all that they mean to you, and that's how you express your love. Well, in a very small way, that's what God the Father wanted to do with God the Son, except for the fact that His love was, was eternal, that was, was unlimited, and it was absolutely perfect and holy, and so the expression of love would be far beyond anything that we could ever do. God deemed that the way to express it was to choose a redeemed humanity. So the whole work of redemption was planned in eternity past. 1 Timothy 1.9 says, God purposed it in Christ Jesus before the world began. And God says, I'm going to give you a redeemed humanity. They're going to be exactly like you. They're going to take on your very image. And they're going to surround you forever and ever and give you praise and glory. Now, that's why you were saved. You were saved because God deemed to save you before you were ever born, before the world ever began. God chose you in Him before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. You were predestined. Why? By love. By not so much God's love for you as God's love for Christ. The goal of that predestination, ultimately, is to conform you to the image of Christ. The Father then said to the Son, I want to give you this redeemed humanity. The Son, no doubt, said, well, what is my part? The Father said, your part is to go into the world and die, pay the price for their sins, so that their sins can be covered and I can bring them to glory. And so the second member of the Trinity, Christ, did his part. He came into the world and died to pay the penalty for sin so that the elect could be redeemed and gathered into glory to praise him forever and ever and ever. That is why on the cross, when all of it was done, Jesus said, it is what? Finished. He didn't mean my, my dying is finished. He didn't mean my suffering is finished. He meant the reason I came is finished. And then he came out the other side of the grave to prove it. So we were saved ultimately to be taken to glory, to praise the Son forever and ever as ones made like him. Then there's really only one reason we were redeemed. And the one reason we were redeemed was to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is ultimately what will happen to us. Now go back to Philippians 3 for a moment and let me show you how this unfolds. In verse 12, he says, I press on to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What he is saying is, I want, to, I want to reach out and take the very thing for which Christ reached out and took me. And what have I just said? Christ reached out and took you and me to make us like himself. And Paul says... That's exactly what I want to lay hold of. I was saved to be made like Christ. Someday in eternity I will be like Christ. But in the meantime, in time, I pursue being like Christ. Let me show it to you another way. Go down to verse 14. I press on toward the goal which is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, follow this carefully. He says, I'm pressing on, same thing that he said in verse 12, aggressively moving toward a goal. What is the goal? The goal, he says, is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the upward call of God? That's going to heaven. And when we go to heaven, what will be the prize? Christ-likeness. 
In heaven, the prize is Christ-likeness. Until we get to heaven to receive the prize, which is Christ-likeness, that's the reason God redeemed us, what then is the goal? It's the same. Look at it again in verse 14. I press on toward the goal, which is the prize. God saved me to make me like Christ. Someday He will make me like Christ when I'm called up. In the meantime, what is the prize in eternity becomes the goal in time. So what is the one thing I do? The one thing I do is press on to become more and more like Christ. That's what this passage is saying. Paul says, I have, I have seen clearly that the irreducible minimum, the bottom line, when all else is said and done and screened and filtered, it all comes down to this I was saved to be made like Christ in eternity, and that is my goal in time. That's what you live for. God saved you because He wanted to use you as a love gift to give to His Son. What a high and noble and lofty calling. He saved you in order to make you like Him so that He could be the prototokos, the supreme one among many brethren who would forever and ever and ever praise Him. And he knew that that had to include incarnation because part of our praise is dependent upon the redemption which he purchased for us, as well as the priestly intercessory ministry that he carried on because he was in all points tempted like as we are, because he was man yet without sin. Our ability to praise him is, of course, tied to his incarnation and his amazing and unique identification with us. So Paul says there's just one thing, really, in spiritual life, just one thing in being a believer, just one thing to live for, not many, just one, and that is to know this, God saved you to make you like Christ. Someday He will make you like Christ. In the meantime, the goal here and now is to conform more and more to being like Christ. The prize becomes the goal for which we live. So what do we do as Christians? We pursue Christ. That's what we live for. Now, before Paul learned this, he was living for a lot of things. Go back to verse 5. He was trying to get to know God. He was trying to gain eternal life. He was trying to become righteous through a number of things. He says in verse 5, I have a, a lot of things that I accumulated. I was circumcised the eighth day. If salvation is by ritual, I qualify. I was of the nation of Israel, if salvation is by race, I qualify. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, if salvation is of privilege, I qualify. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, if salvation is by tradition, I qualify. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, if salvation comes by, by religious commitment, I qualify. There were only 6,000 Pharisees in the world at that time. As far as zeal goes, I persecuted those I thought were heretics in the church. So if, if intensity and zeal counts for anything, I qualify. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. As far as people know, I didn't break any of God's laws. So if salvation comes by morality, I qualified. And verse 7, he says, these things were gained to me. He was looking at life like, a, like an accountant. And he had over here sort of the profit column, the gain column, and he just put all the stuff in that column that was gained to him. Hmm. Circumcised the eighth day. That's the sign of the covenant. That, that certainly puts me in the covenant. That puts me in the covenant people. 
of the tribe of, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen and elect people of the tribe of Benjamin, that most noble of tribes for a number of reasons, tribe from which the first king, Saul, was selected, the tribe territorially in which the city of Jerusalem was, was located, a very noble tribe. Whenever they went to war, the people from the tribe of Benjamin were the front-line marines that, that first engaged the enemy. Not only that, as far as tradition goes, I maintained the Hebrew tradition. I was in a Gentile world, but I never defected. I was orthodox. And when it came to making a selection about what level of religion I wanted to live at, I chose the most impassioned level, and I became a Pharisee fanatical about the law of God down to the last detail. And as far as zeal, I killed Christians because I thought they were heretics. And as far as righteousness, I was so blameless, nobody had anything they could say against me in terms of the violation of the law. My heart wasn't right, but I had control of the outside. And I put all that stuff in my gain column, and I thought, God has got to be impressed. And then a most amazing thing happened. He was going along the Damascus Road, and he met Christ. The story of his conversion externally is Acts 9. The story of his conversion internally is Philippians 3. All of a sudden, verse 7 says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I had all this stuff in my gain column, and I met Christ, and I said, wait a minute. That's not gain at all. It's meaningless. Salvation is not by ritual or race or privilege or tradition or religion or zeal or morality. I thought that was all gain. It turned out to be loss. Worse than that, if you go down further in the text to verse 8, the bottom of the verse, he says, I count them but rubbish. That's a Greek word for excrement, not a very nice word. I looked at everything I had accumulated in my profit column and I saw it as manure, dung, the worst, base, useless, get rid of it, repulsive, compared to Christ. When I found Christ, like the parable of Matthew 13, I found the pearl of great price. When I found Christ, I found the treasure hidden in the field. And Christ was so valuable to me that like the man who found the treasure and the man who found the pearl, I sold everything. Because Christ was so valuable. In fact, back in verse 8, he says, I count all things to be loss, all things to be in the manure pile when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that became the only thing the man lived for. To know Christ, to know Christ, to know Christ, to know Him better and better and better. Why? Because in the knowing comes the conformity, right? To be like Christ is to know Christ. The more you know Him, the more you become like Him. He says, I found in Christ righteousness. Verse 9, a righteousness not of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness through faith. I found in Christ relationship. Verse 10, I came to know Him. I found in Christ power, the power of the resurrection. I found in Christ sympathy, the fellowship of His sufferings. I, I found somebody who had felt the pain that I feel and somebody who could commiserate with me and comfort me and understand me. Not only that, I found in Christ purpose, being conformed to His death. I found somebody to die for, somebody to give my life for. Then, verse 11, I found in Christ eternal life and the resurrection from the dead. So he says, here I was and I was going through life and I was accumulating all this stuff in my gain column. 
and everything that I wanted, like righteousness and the knowledge of God and power in my life and somebody to be sympathetic and something to die for and the hope of eternal life, I couldn't find. None of it was there. And then I met Christ and I saw that was all trash and Christ was everything. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says in verse 8, has led me to suffer willingly the loss of everything, absolutely everything, and count them all but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, people, this is a very simple and yet a very profound reality at the very heart of the Christian faith. When you came to Christ, you recognized that He was everything. You saw the surpassing value of knowing Christ and everything else in your life compared to Christ was rubbish, trash, dung. And then that became the one thing for which you live. To more and more know Him so that more and more you could become like Him. You were saved to be made like Him and that becomes the pursuit of your life. John put it this way, 1 John 2, if we say that we abide in Christ, then we ought to walk even as He walked. Paul put it another way in Galatians 2.20, for to me to live is Christ. That is to say, I don't live my own life. For me to live is just Christ. That's all I live for. And to die is gain, he says earlier in Philippians. And then in Galatians he says, living for Christ is my life it's yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. So he got to the point where he was so consumed with living for Christ, so consumed with this one thing, so consumed with pursuing Christ's likeness that he couldn't tell where Christ stopped and he started. This is Christian living. It is being lost in the reality of Christ's likeness. It is pursuing the knowledge of Christ so that we may be like him. Now, how does that happen? Look at 2 Corinthians for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The end of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians verse 18. And here the Apostle Paul gathers all believers into the statement, we all, he says, with an unveiled face. And he's comparing us to Moses who had a veil over his face in the prior text here, nothing hindering our viewpoint, nothing, nothing hindering our vision. With an unveiled face, nothing in the way, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the mirror that reflects God's glory to us? If you want to see the glory of God, where do you look? Right here. This is the mirror. It's a graphic way to describe the Bible, but it's precisely what it is. When you read the Word of God, heaven is bouncing off that page, isn't it? This is the revelation of God. It's as if the Bible was a receiver and God was a satellite sending the signal. It bounces right off of this book into your very life. When you read the ink on the pages of your Bible, there's more than ink and paper here. You're receiving communication from God. The glory of the Lord is being bounced off the mirror of Scripture. You are literally gazing into the glory of the Lord. 
And the point is, as you do that, as you pour over the Scripture, as you read and as you study the Scripture, he says in verse 18, you are being transformed into the same image. How do I get to know Christ? How do I become like Christ? How am I shaped and molded into His image? By gazing continually at His glory. And the mirror of reflection is the Bible. And as it casts the reality of Christ into my heart and mind, it begins to shape me into His very image. Look back at verse 18. From one level of glory to the next level of glory. And the intent here is even to say to the next level of glory and the next and the next until I am moving up the ladder of becoming more and more like Christ. And who is doing this? The end of the verse the Lord, the Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit conforms the believer more and more into the image of Christ as the believer gazes into the Word at the glory of the Lord. As Christ begins to dominate your thinking, as the reality and the majesty and the wonder of who He is comes to you through the pages of Scripture, you are moved by the Holy Spirit from one level of glory to the next. That is to say, you more and more and more embrace the glory that is distinctively Christ's, which means you become more and more like Him. There really shouldn't be anything confusing or anything mystical or magical about spiritual growth and development. But there also isn't anything instantaneous and cataclysmic about it. It is a process. And Paul says, there's just one thing I do. With everything that is in me, I press hard toward that goal of being like Christ, which is the prize that God designs to give me when I'm called up. I was saved to be made like Christ. That's the prize and that's my goal. It is my eternal inheritance. It is my temporal goal. In Colossians chapter 2, there's another scripture that lends some richness to this same thought. There are many, really. But I just draw you to Colossians 2. There are some benefits here, folks, in pursuing Christ-likeness. Some tremendous benefits. Colossians 2, 2. Oh, by the way, go back to chapter 1 for a moment, verse 28. Verse 28 of chapter 1. Paul says, The goal of my ministry, the goal of my ministry, Colossians 1.28, is to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, all biblical wisdom. Here's the reason that we may present every man, what? Complete in Christ. Paul says, I not only am pursuing Christ's likeness for my own life, but I'm pursuing it for everybody to whom I minister. My goal will never be satisfied. My longing will never be fulfilled until I see people like Christ. That's what he told the Galatians. I will not be satisfied until Christ is fully formed in you. In fact, he put it this way. I have birth pains like a woman trying to give birth to a child. I agonize until Christ is formed in you. And so here he says the goal of my ministry is to present every man complete in Christ. He said to the Ephesians, the goal for the church is to grow up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, in Christ, middle of the verse, is all the wealth. 
In verse 3, in Christ is all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9, in Christ is all the fullness of deity. All the wealth, all the treasure is in Christ. In Him, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In Him you've been buried in baptism and raised up through faith. Everything is in Christ. Now, let me just draw this to a conclusion. When you came to Christ, you recognized the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, and you sold everything as it were, and you committed yourself to Christ. At the time of your salvation, He was precious to you, more precious than anything else. Has He become less precious? Was He precious in justification, but not so much in sanctification? Listen to this. When Paul said that I count everything in my life rubbish, and that I have willingly lost everything, suffered the loss of all things, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, when Paul said there's only one thing I do with my life, that is, I press toward this goal of being like Christ, that's all I live for. When he was in effect saying Christ is the most precious reality in my life, he had been a believer for over 30 years. Christ was not less precious. You're living in a day when I believe, little by little, subtly and systematically, the centrality of Jesus Christ is being eliminated from the life and ministry of the church. And a myriad of other things are being substituted. But Christ is no longer the focus. But He must be the focus in our lives and in His church. And it has to start with you. Are you pursuing the thing for which God pursued you? He saved you to be like Christ. That's all He asks, is that you press toward that goal. Let's pray. We thank our Father of the church at Ephesus who left their first love. And there are so many uh, who have done that. Christ was all precious. At the moment of salvation, He was the pearl of great price. He was the treasure hidden in the field and we sold all gladly. And we counted all things but loss. But a few years later, Somehow, the gold is tarnished. The pearl has lost its luster. The one that we affirmed was deity in bodily form, in whom were hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the one in whom was all wealth and all understanding, the one in whom is all beauty and glory and majesty, the one in whom we found righteousness, and relationship, and power, and sympathy. The one in whom we found a reason to live and a reason to die, the one in whom we found eternal life, has somehow lost his glitter, at least in our minds. 
And somehow he's become commonplace. And the love that once was there is not the same. Lord, help us as individuals to get back to the one thing, pursuing Christ, His glory, His will, His character. And may we know that the place of such a pursuit is in the Word and in communion with You. May we gaze into the mirror and may we see the reflection of Christ and be transformed by the Holy Spirit evermore into His own glory. We ask these things not for our sakes, but that we might be to His praise, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Amen.